when God created the cosmos, he starts the clock. Do you know what I mean? Time comes into existence with the cosmos. So time is not a curse. Time is not a um, something that befalls us. It's it's sort of the it's the incubator of human possibility in creation. Welcome to the Wellspring Soul Care Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Gotthardt. I'm part of the Wellspring team. At Wellspring and Soul Care, we deeply desire to see pastors, leaders, really everyone, lead and serve God and other people out of a well-tended inner life. We know that the pressures many of us are facing are enormous, and so we want to come alongside and help people lead and serve God in ways that are sustainable, intentional, and integrated. So on our podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, thought leaders, and others who are seeking to practice life and ministry in the ways of Jesus. With all the voices clamoring for attention, we hope to be one that points clearly and directly to Jesus, the source of life and of truth. I'm excited for our conversation today because we get to talk to James K.A. Smith, or Jamie, as he uh, encouraged me to call him. James is the professor of philosophy, or one of them, at Calvin University. He serves as editor-in-chief of Image Journal. It's a quarterly devoted to art, mystery, and faith. Jamie's trained as a philosopher with a focus on contemporary French thought, but he's expanded on that scholarly platform to become an engaged public intellectual and cultural critic. He's written several significant books, which I encourage you to check out, but the one we get to talk about today is his latest, which is How to Inhabit Time. I found the book to be super helpful, very encouraging, and just a thought-provoking read and discussion. I think you're gonna enjoy our conversation today with James K.A. Smith. much for taking some time to talk to us today. And um, I just finished, I read your uh, your latest book this last week. Uh, and wow, what a gift uh, this book is, is uh, in addition to so many of the others that you've written. You started in the introduction of the very vulnerable place. You talked about uh, dealing with depression for a long season. And um and I thought, wow, what a both vulnerable thing and what a curious thing to do that in, mm. in a book about time. Can you talk mm. about that connection a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in, in many ways, uh, I would say it was my experience in counseling and therapy that was a catalyst for this book. I, I, in mm. other words, my, my experience of... Um, l- finding emotional and mental wholeness or the pursuit of that at least um, was very much um, an exercise in re-narration of Mm. who I am and and um, uh, you know learning to tell myself a different story uh, in my bones not just in my head and uh, in, in my experience, um, grappling with, with some of the sources and causes of my uh, depression was, was facing a history 
uh, and facing legacies of what had been handed down to me. And so in, and as you, as you know, how to inhabit time sort of sees that as a spiritual discipline, as it were, to, to mm-hmm. that, that part of spiritual timekeeping is, is grappling with and reckoning with our, our pasts. And um, so I felt like uh, it would be only authentic and genuine to sort of start there as well. Mm. I mean, I guess I should also say um, as a Christian academic, as a Christian intellectual, I have felt more and more convicted about the need to speak publicly about the challenges of mental health Mm -hmm. because I think we still stigmatize them. And I, I think especially those of us maybe who are sort of quote unquote Christian intellectuals because we always think we should be able to think our way out of any problem. And and mm. my experience of depression was, no, it doesn't matter how smart you think you are. You can't solve this by thinking better. Um, and so I, I always just want to sort of give, I, I, I guess I want to do that to give other people permission to name that in their own lives, because we still have so many spaces where we're not allowed to do that. You know, from the other books, how how important St. Augustine is to me. And I would say for one of the things I love about St. Augustine is he models vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think vulnerability is very powerful. Uh, And so I'm sure to, I guess, lean into that. Well, I do think it's a gift um, as one, as a person myself who has dealt uh, and struggled with both anxiety and depression over the years, over much of my life. It's... um, like you said, to acknowledge it, to destigmatize. And I think, like you said, to, to, to move it just from a think or believe your way to, to a different outcome. I mean, I think referring back to, uh, you know, earlier of your writing, I think you used the term, <laughs> I love the term brains on a stick. Mm-hmm. Um, and that we, that, that is so helpful to say we can't, because I think the undercurrent, sometimes even the explicit message in the church is just think this way or believe this way and that'll solve everything. And yeah, that we're embodied creatures and yes. that's so yes. helpful. Yeah. I mean, in that respect, it's also sometimes uh, um, frustrating too, that there's a lot of forms of Christian counseling, which are still some version of, well, you haven't memorized this Bible passage correctly. Mm-hmm. Therefore you are struck. Where, whereas my experience of, of Christian counseling is much more holistic and mm-hmm. uh, um, radical, you might say. Yeah. Oh, well, Gosh, we could spend an hour on that at least, but sure. we're going to talk about your book. What I mean, again, I would assume that for many philosophers, just theoretically thinking about time as a both a construct and a, and you know an idea, there's no end of that. But to be able to do it and engage this topic in a way that's not just um, ideas, but how to actually, as you say in the title itself, inhabit time. What what drew you to want to write about this? Yeah, and because you you'll have noticed, I I actually don't spend a lot of time asking the typical philosophers questions. Mm. You know, I'm not asking what is time, and <laughs> you know, is there continuity of identity across time? The things philosophers care about time doesn't always feel like it hits the road uh, for normal people. Whereas I, I would say, um, I think the real call that I'm trying to answer in this book is to um, take seriously our creaturehood. Mm. In fact, I would put this for, for um, 
the the wellspring community who will be very familiar with say dallas willard richard foster you know conversations and and the community that's built up around spiritual formation i very very much identify with that my my earlier book you are what you love is really trying to be a contribution to that but i would say one of the things i've noticed in our spiritual formation conversation is i don't think that we've had a very good account of why human temporality uh our embeddedness in time the fact that we live out our lives embedded in history i don't think that that has really been sort of reflected with any sufficient accent in the way that we think about spiritual formation but I think that any any authentic and adequate account of spiritual formation, well, first of all, it has to be spiritual formation for creatures. <laughs> you, we all know, you know, Thomas Merton uh, uh, said there are too many books on holiness that that feel like calls to be angels. Right. And we're not we're not called to be angels. We're called to be the humans that that God has made us to be. And I think if we're going to have an account of spiritual formation that takes our creaturehood, our finitude, uh, seriously, it will also have to be an account of formation that takes our mortality seriously. And by mortality, I don't just mean that we will die, but that we are the kinds of creatures who are sort of stretched out and elongated by time that we that we are shaped by the history that we live through and so i'm trying to lean into that and say okay well, what difference does it make that we live a lifetime right mm. from a, 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 a moment to moment uh, um there is something that is different and changed and possible and and what does it look like to think about the fact that god is shaping us and calling us and forming us but that we got and god is eternal but we are creatures who you know unfold <laughs> over a lifetime and um so i'm, I'm trying to lean into that i sorry i'm, I'm rambling a bit but that's no, that's kind of the animating impetus because uh, you know for me growing up in the, in the church context time was often really either we we didn't talk about it other than it seemed like either was either a an enemy or, you know, so you only have so much time, so you better squeeze out every bit of good you can do. And then when someone dies, then we say, well, don't worry about it because, you know, we got eternity. But we didn't seem to know. It was a very strange way to relate to or, or maybe not relate to, to our, our time. You use a term in the book a number of times, and I'm not sure if you pronounce it no when or now when. Um, can you no talk when, about that yeah, term like nowhere no versus no yeah. when, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, because I, I was, yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah, so you're exactly right. It, it's um, so I think, in forms of evangelicalism that I experienced too as a young Christian, I actually think functionally, we assume that because God is eternal and we're connected to that eternal God that in a way we sort of floated above time or we, mm -hmm. we managed to like surf time rather than be thrown about by the waves of temporality. And um, uh, in philosophy, there is this common notion that is called the view from nowhere, 
right? Mm -hmm. That is somebody thinks that they have a standpoint or a viewpoint that isn't located in a context or something like they just, you know, they're above everything and they can see the whole, but of course only God could have such a view. Right. In, in a similar way, I do think that there are a lot of forms of American Christianity that assume they have a view from no when, right? Like as if, our our very being isn't sort of located and embedded in a particular history in a particular moment at a particular time and uh, um to say we don't have that is not to lament the fact that we are located in time do you know what i mean i think that's the other mm -hmm. thing is it's that it's that it's that hubris that wants to be an angel rather mm -hmm. than accepting the gift of our creaturehood and say that when God created us, well, when God created the cosmos, he starts the clock. Do you know what I mean? Time mm -hmm. comes into existence with the cosmos. So time is not a curse. Time is not a um, something that befalls us. It's, it's sort of the, it's the incubator of human possibility in creation. And I, I think um, too many forms of Christianity sort of resent that or yeah. at least don't take it seriously. Now, I, I think that's partly because it reflects some aspects of American culture that sort of resents temporality. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like we, we want the quick fix, the instant solution. Uh, we want to get to the end of the story. We want success without the arduous uh, years it takes to master a craft or something like that. So in that way, I think we just kind of echo the culture. It seems like we do. And in fact, as well, in our, I would say, you know, youth obsessed kind of culture that we live in, even the idea of aging, right, is such a, and I, you, I, I loved how as later on in the book, you wrote so beautifully about aging, um, it, that it's not a curse to age. Um, and yet, boy, it seems like even in the church, that's so in, in, in kind of gotten in through our culture, I think, of that aging is such a bad thing or, or, a, a lamentable thing at least yes yes but you and, write and about go ahead well and it's it, and we we lose something because of that because then we create this cult of youth mm -hmm. uh and we we actually aren't even in a place to receive the gifts of wisdom that come with age uh and so it's and then uh the you know the elderly saints in our communities they, they are like treasures there for us, but we keep looking back to youth as if that's the sort of pinnacle. And we're in a way we're spurning good gifts that God has given us because people have endured through the years. Yeah, in fact, you, later in the book, you talked about the as a very practical um, step for people to take is to be in conversation, right, with people that are older to, as a part of discerning how to how to even age well or inhabit time well and, and vice versa that have you, have you how have you seen that you know play out in helpful ways for people to be in conversation with different generations yeah as as i as i discuss it in the book uh in a way you it's it's very very hard well in fact it's impossible you can't get above time right you can't you can't get some sort of spiritual drone that floats you above your embeddedness in time. So, so, so often when we're in the thick of things, 
it's very difficult to recognize our time, for example, as a particular sort of season that we might find ourselves in. So you can't get above time, but you can almost cheat if you can make friendships across generations. So for me, multi-generational friendship is a bit like time travel because now what happens is, okay, let's say I'm in the, you know, I'm, I'm in my twenties or thirties and I'm in the thick of child rearing and, you know, which is both beautiful and terrifying and, uh, um, the, the sort of the fog of war that is child rearing <laughs> and you're, and you're in the thick of it and you, and you don't even maybe realize that that's a particular season of your life that you are called to. And you, and you're worried and you're fearful and you're, and you think it's not going well, but then you can make friends with somebody who's in their fifties or their sixties or their seventies. And you might look at them now and say, Oh, your kids are so amazing. And how did you pull this off? And they seem so like calm and grateful. And well, when you have a conversation with them, you realize, Oh, they, they lived through this season that I find myself in now. I didn't see it, right? I I just kind of have this snapshot and their life looks so blissful and beautiful and faithful. And I'm like, I'm never going to get there. But then you realize, oh no, they came through a time just like I did. Mm-hmm. And it engenders hope. I think, I think when you hear the testimonies of those who've gone before and realize that they have struggled now you know that God is faithful and has brought them through and God can, will be faithful and will bring me through. So you that looking ahead. Now, I would also say it's equally attentive now for those of us who are ahead mm-hmm. <laughs> to listen backwards and, uh, first of all, to give that gift to younger generations. But I would also say, I guess one of the reasons I like being a college professor is you keep hearing what 20-year-olds are experiencing of the world. And and there I think there will just always be a sense in which the 20-year-old's finger on the pulse of the now is always picking up something that this old guy's not, right? And so it keeps me attuned to the now in which we find ourselves in ways that I might might have been hidden from me otherwise. So I, I think the gifts go both ways. I wanted to lean into that description of hope that you said, because I actually later in the book, I really love this term. You described hope as an elongation of the soul towards the future. And that's a that's a Mm. beautiful and packed phrase. Can you talk about Mm. that? The elongation of the soul. So uh, I think one of the things that goes on in hope which is a particular way of being towards the future, right? Like we, we all have some relationship to the future. It, it, the question is how you relate to the future. And I think, you know, doomsdayism is another way of relating to the future, but it just right. engenders despair, right? I think what, what happens in hope is there's this graced way in which you are able to already experience in anticipation something of the reality for which you are hoping for in its fullness. Mm-hmm. So it's maybe just another way of talking a little bit about what we often call, you know, the sort of already not yet of God's kingdom. And uh, um, I think hope is where 
now you know something, you have some sort of tangible almost experience of what God is calling you to and what God is bringing about in the world, but it's not here in its fullness yet. And so now you, you there's almost like a pregnancy of the soul that is sort mm-hmm. of waiting, it's gestating. And now you're, you, you live in expectation even as you live in waiting. And I think to, to inhabit that space is not easy, um, but it is much better than despair. Uh, I also think it's so much better than imagining the future is entirely up to us, which is terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I hope that hope um, is part of the sort of invitation. Yeah, maybe we could speak into that a little bit. It, it seems like we're living in a time um, where I, I think of my my own children who are young adults now and they look at the world around them or the world that they've in a sense been handed that when you think of whether it's climate or other polarizations or other things they feel like wow we've been handed a mess and they have in a lot of ways yeah and then you have other folks that are just in the christian world it's like yeah well i mean i i grew up in that whole um eschatology of well it's all gonna burn you know god's gonna you know wipe this thing out and start over so there was sort of a like, yeah, it's all just going to get worse and that despair, but almost like a laissez-faire about it, almost like, yeah, yeah. just wait it out. Uh, inhabiting time differently is like without despair and without dismissiveness seems, I mean, like so critical. How, how do you speak to even those young adults in your college, you know, classrooms that are probably facing some of those things? Yeah, no. And, and actually, the way I usually start the conversation is to say... I totally get it. Do you know what I mean? Like I like mm-hmm. in some ways I, I just want to honor the the temptation of despair or or um you know a kind of giving up. I, I get it because it seems very, very frustrating. But then I I usually try to invite them to see, and this is this is almost too marvelous to comprehend in a way. by that I mean like just sort of incomprehensible, which is it is amazing that if you look throughout history, sometimes the most potent, powerful expressions of hope have been from the communities that have been most oppressed. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like if you you think, I, I, I think, for example, it is a remarkable legacy and testimony that some of the most powerful music of hope is music that emerged from the black church in the United States. And if you think of everything that could have given you reason to despair, like despair Mm. would almost be the rational outcome. And yet something in that graced way of imagining a possible future given Christ's resurrection it, it engenders, uh, wonderfully, I would say, it engenders both the blues <laughs> and black spirituals and, and holding together lament and hope. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe that's part of it. Maybe that's mm-hmm. part of what young people also need us to say is, I mentioned briefly in the book that I think hope is very, very different from optimism. Mm-hmm. Optimism is still rooted in like our self-confidence in our capacity to fix things. And I will, I'm enough of an Augustinian that I have zero confidence in our capacity, but hope is 
it's not really pegged to what's possible given how, you know, in uh, um, what geniuses we are or our moral willpower. It's completely pegged to what God has done in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And mm. it's that sort of index of possibility and living into that. But I think if we could be honest to say there is no competition. So hope is not optimism. It's not just, you know, confidence in, in our power. Hope also, however, is not contradictory with lament. Mm. And I think, I think if the church could get over sliding into either despair versus optimism and instead learn to live into hope and lament, then I think we are inhabiting, well, that's why the Psalms are the right. hymn book God has given us because it's practice. The Psalms give us a way to practice our way into uh, lament and hope and holding those things together in tension until kingdom come. Mm. It does remind me, well, I think it was Leslie Newbigin who said, I'm neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Christ has risen from the dead, right? Exactly. A, of, a, of another order altogether, right? Yes, exactly. So, so as you think about time in um you also use this word uh thrownness and i think it maybe mm. it was a bit from from heidegger you know this idea that he said that we're we don't just sort of as you said we, we're not this um impartial sort of you know drifted down out of the heavens you know we come into a particular time and place can you can you talk about this idea of thrownness and yeah. what that what that means for us as we inhabit time yeah, I'm so I'm so glad you you highlighted this. Um, it is. It's from this this German philosopher Martin Heidegger, but I actually think there's a there's a theological legacy to the idea. Mm -hmm. So what he means is, um, thrownness is kind of your experience of waking up and recognizing, oh, I I kind of live at this particular time in this particular place with this particular backstory. All, all of us have a backstory mm -hmm. that got us to where we are. And uh, bound up in that backstory are all kinds of contingencies and zigs and zags. And, you know, our parents met somehow and all the, and, you know, that I'm born in Canada in the night, you know, 1970 into a particular context that all that's all like um, makes a difference for me, but mm -hmm. it also could have been different. Do you know what I mean? Like it's contingent. Mm -hmm. It could, it could have gone otherwise, but it didn't. So what happens now is I, I find myself thrown into a particular life. And often, by the way, we don't become aware of this. We never think about this. Well, too many people never think about it. But right. if we, if, even if we come to reflect on our lives and realize, Oh, okay here I am, here's my story, here's my backstory. When we uh, um, realize that, by that time, usually we have also made a bunch of decisions in our life <laughs> that have right. sort of, you know, roads taken and not, right? And so we, we've, uh, um, you know, we get to this place and now we're trying to discern who am I? Mm -hmm. What am I called to? What's possible for me? Mm -hmm. And I think part of receiving the gift of our creaturehood is realizing that no matter all of those contingencies, it was 
God's will, right? Mm. That I've lived into this. That, then in a sense, if I'm thrown, it's God who's thrown me into this and mm. has been with me in all of this. And so now the trick is to reckon with my heritage, reckon with my past, reckon with my backstory, and to see what is possible because of it. Hmm. Not to resent what's not possible because of it, right? I mean, which is which is easier said than done. Do you know? Like I was saying to a friend yesterday. Uh, so I'm I'm fifty. I'm I'll, I'll be fifty two shortly, and uh, um, you know, it's natural for people to say, you know, if I could do it over, right, right, and then you here's or you know, I see a friend who's a novelist, and I'm like. I wish I was a novelist. You know, I would, I would just right. love to, but it's like, but that wasn't my story. That wasn't my, mm. you know, I, I, um, I can't resent or regret the fact that God has thrown me into a particular life. Instead, what I should be looking for and discerning is what are the distinct possibilities that in a way only I could carry out in God's creation because mm. I've lived that particular story. Does that, I don't know. Does that, does that help? Absolutely. And I, it seems to be so deeply tied to this idea that you talk a lot about too, is discernment, right? Discernment. And because yeah. again, it's at odds a bit with this our American narrative of I can do or become anything I want. Right. Which uh, there's a level of patent absurdity to it. Right. I was never going to be yes. a ballerina. Right. Or, right, uh, right. you know, I was or, never going to dunk a basketball. <laughs> no, no, no. And so and yet that we want to like to to live into our creatureliness, as you say, is is and even my particular story, my particular life is not just a, oh, it's too bad that I can't. I mean, depending on how we're wired. Or if I try really hard, I could now do that. Maybe there's an invitation, perhaps. But but to, to, to not just, it's not just resignation, I hear, but actually discerning what am I invited into, right? In this, in this season, it, given who I am and my background and what's around me, all of that. Exactly. Not resignation. I think that's a, that's a, that's an important way of putting it. And it's instead trying to, what you're looking for, what you're trying to discern is uh, um, what are the unique kind of, what's the unique mission that God has for me in the world, given the life that I have lived and been thrown into and to realize that every single human being has a sweet spot at the intersection mm. of those two things. And it is overwhelmingly about possibility, not impossibility. Right. Mm. And I, I still, there will still be at facets of what I have not yet dreamed that God wants to call me into and unfurl and unfold as a possibility if I, I, it's not that I don't have responsibility. Of course, I have responsibility to cultivate my gifts, to mm -hmm. listen carefully, to apprentice myself uh, to God and to, uh, you know, communities of practitioners that are relevant to me. But there's, there's this sense of um, the discernment exercise is about reckoning with my past, which means uh, we should point out, by the way, none of this is meant to like just say everything that has happened to me is beautiful. 
It's not. Right. Do you know what right. I mean? Like it's right. it's it's not a way of saying, well, that happened to you for a reason, and therefore your trauma, <laughs> that terrible abuse you experienced, whatever, might, that's all part of what. It's not. It doesn't justify mm. any of that. It's just saying that the what grace is is the singular resurrecting possibility of what God can draw out of all of that. And uh, uh, when, I, when I'm trying to discern my call, when I'm trying to discern what God is calling to me now, and this doesn't happen once in your life, this happens incessantly in your life. You're mm-hmm. always trying to discern what does it look like for me to be faithful now? Mm-hmm. And um, to realize it's mostly about trying to see what has God handed down to me, given my past? And us, you know, there's a collective version. What has God handed down to us? And therefore, what are we called to embody moving into the future? And this seems like such a critical task for us as individuals. Uh, it seems like at any time. Uh, and I, in a moment, I want to just talk about even because you talk about the seasonality of discernment mm-hmm. too. But mm-hmm. but it seems like this is what we as uh, faith leaders are are also meant to do, be doing collectively in our faith communities is to discern together what is God calling, not based on somebody else's model, strategy, or idea, but really what is God calling us uniquely given our unique history, location, all those things. How do we discern together where God is inviting us? Um, absolutely absolutely yeah. and and um one one thing that's frustrating about this is i i think all good wise faithful discernment is ad hoc that is mm. um i think it is always highly contextualized and so that it's one of the reasons why you can't just take the formula or a template of some other congregation. And you can't even just sort of like latch on to some trend and say, mm-hmm. oh, well, this is what we are called to because everybody else is doing it. No, 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 no. The, the, the discernment is this hard work of seeing mm-hmm. your particular history, now a collective history, your particular place in this moment we call now, what possibilities are there in your congregation, let's say, as an example, and therefore, given that past, what are you called to in the moment? And that might include, you know, the particularities of your city, your neighborhood, mm-hmm. the context mm-hmm. in which you're a mission, uh, um, ministering. Uh, so there's what I think people find a little bit frustrating is this is um, there's no formula. There's yeah. no um it's just the hard communal work of like asking, okay, God, what do you want us to do now? And whenever we are asking that question, I think just the first work that has to be done is, well, how did we get here? Where have we come from? Um, and what is God calling us to in the future? And that the intersection of those is where you find this discernment. And as you say, it's not forever, right? A, a discernment of a kind of priority of mission or whatever that might be. It might be for a season because that's what the season demands. Like I, I would think, yeah. I, I know from talking to friends who are, are pastors, the, the sort of quote unquote post-pandemic reality I know is 
Now, this is all of a sudden a new context that none of your church growth or pastoral theology books in the 1990s anticipated. Nobody could have possibly have been talking about the fallout of people being isolated for two years and watching things on these little devices at home, right? Nobody could have prepared us for this. So it means we don't have like a play sheet. So now we are kind of making it up and trying to discern what do we do? What's needed? Um, What is the great threat? isolation, loneliness, destabilization. How do we respond to that? I think uh, um, we are making it up, Mm. but we're making it up with the spirit uh, who has promised to lead us into all truth. And that's so, that's so hopeful filled. If it's, if it's, you know, rather than someone tell me the answer, uh, but together with the spirit leaning into what is the spirit saying now, you talk in the book about how it, in, at an individual level, this idea of seasonality, like, for example, I just came back from meeting my new grandson, right? And so yeah, my, the amazing. season of life that I'm in just suddenly became a little more clear of what does it mean to be a grandparent, right? And and in different ones of us listening, you know, whether it's discerning, what does it mean to be in what, what season am I in? What What a gift that can be to discern. How, how would you recommend for folks, you said it's harder when we try and do that at a, we zoom out and try and do that at a collective level, right? Like what season are we in as a nation? What season yeah. are we in as the broader yeah. church? What, what and, and maybe that's not always for us to fully answer, but but what would help uh, faith leaders do that to to help, you know, to be that metaphysicer who discern the time? Yeah. You know, right. what what would be some clues to discern what season we're maybe more in collectively and, yeah. and how to how to respond? So and it is. Uh, um, I'm going to disappoint you because I don't think I have a great answer to this, but let's <laughs> let's talk it out for the first thing is whenever we ask, when are we what mm-hmm. season are we in? It just always helps, I think, to ask who is we? Like, which mm. we are we talking about? Mm. And, and I, I don't mean that in like any sort of like gotcha way. I just mean uh, um, uh, recognize that there are sort of different collectives, right? Mm. So, um, you know, what what are we, the American church, called to? Right. Um, that's probably really, really hard to pull off because I'm not sure that there is this one thing that is, quote unquote, the American church, right? There's It's, right. it's going to be contextualized. But um, I do think if you if you think at the level of like big cultural moments and challenges and discerning what season we're in, I think the most important thing we should be doing is listening for, I don't know how to put it, the pinch points where we feel like the, the witness of Jesus is most a response to the longings of the world. So I'll, I'll, now, I, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to set down an agenda. I, I will just say, I think that our discernment that is faithful should never be driven by fear. So I would think whenever, if, if we ever find ourselves operating first and foremost out of fear or alarm, we're not in a very good place to do the work of discernment. Because mm. I would say that we are probably subtly, we have let our expectations be co-opted 
by something other than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we're like, we're worried about this and we're worried about that. And we're scared about where's what's coming. All of which are probably understandable on a kind of human level, if you will. But I think it also shows that maybe our imagination is not adequately gospeled if we are primarily trying to discern out of fear. If we can discern out of um, mission, if we can discern out of love, (laughs) which I, I almost feel bad saying it that way because it sounds so like soppy, but I really mean it, which is, uh, um, at the end of the day, we should be asking, what is the world hungry for that? And, and how is Jesus the, the sort of the only one who can satisfy that desire? And I think that means being able to listen through the heartbreak and even sometimes the anger of the world and to sort of say, what, what is most called for to in terms of bearing witness to Jesus right now? Uh, that would be one side of it. I think the other yeah. side is listening to the sheep and where are they hurting? Where are they hungry? Where are they lonely? Where, you know, listening to the one, maybe not always the 99, it might be the one. And, mm-hmm. and um, I, I'm, I'm worried that this sounds all very pious, but I, I just think it's to discern from a posture of deep compassion just sets up the project very differently, I think. Yeah. Oh, that's so helpful. I wanted to talk about, because so, as you said, everything hinges, and even so much in the, again, in the book you speak about, that, that time itself in human history hinges on the incarnation. And yes. if you will, the I think you used the term even, the Christ event, you know, the, yes. the birth, death, resurrection of Jesus. Um. And and that even the the church calendar can help orient us if to to that. How how is have you seen that play out? That orienting us in time, cyclically, yeah. if you will, as opposed to in a linear way, cyclically, to to um, yeah, the life and death and resurrection of Christ. How does that shape us? Yeah, I think I think it's it's. Um... It's one of the practices of spiritual timekeeping because what happened, let's, let's take the example of the liturgical calendar, the church calendar. Um, I would say how you imagine yourself inhabiting time, uh, how you organize your experience of time is very, very crucial to what you imagine it is to be human. <laughs> so, and, and, and I would say there are all kinds of rival calendars that so easily grab hold of us and actually end up shaping our relationship to one another and to the world. So for example, uh, um, the academic calendar, to take one example. So not, not, it's not just academics who are shaped by the academic calendar. The academic calendar is everybody who has kids in school, right? Is, and right. then whole cultures get sort of shaped around that. And it's not that it's, a, it's an inherently negative thing. It's just that if that's the sort of dominant calendar in your life, um, that becomes sort of the through line of a story that might not have as much coherence or significance mm. to it. Or it actually turns into a story of kind of like consumption, um, 
triumph accomplishments performance you know mm-hmm. there's there's a particular kind of story that that gets enacted with that calendar so one of the reasons why i talk about the liturgical calendar is because i think it's a way of setting your heart watch so to speak hmm. to the story of god's cosmic redemption and hmm. and and in that sense it's not because you have to have some sort of great experience with the liturgical calendar all the time. It's just that if that becomes the baseline of how you imagine a year, all of a sudden now your experience of a year is indexed to the Christ event. Because as as we know, the liturgical calendar, yes, we think of it as Advent and Christmas and Lent and Easter and ordinary time. But in fact, when you really zoom in on what's going on in those liturgical seasons, every single one of them is about something in the life, passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The, the liturgical calendar is actually the life of Jesus lived over and over and over again. And we mm. who are trying to be imitators of Jesus could never have too much practice trying to live into Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, by the way, which is... Ascension, that's right. (laughs) Uh, um, So so, uh, in that sense, and I also think it's the sort of thing where families can observe it, congregations obviously can observe it. And I think if, you know, young people are sort of raised and their imagination is incubated by that, well, now it's like they have another kingdom indexed clock in their body Mm. which will which will sit at odds with some of the other calendars that they have to live in and it's it's just a bit of a countercultural moment i think well it's so much what you even started with uh to jamie is the idea of as you begin to re-narrate your own life this gives us an opportunity to how do my story itself is not just about me Right in our kind of me obsessed world, it's a, I'm I my story is a part of a greater story, and this is a story that I'm rehearsing then, uh, Christ's story uh, through uh, over and over to to put myself beautifully in put. That. Yes, yeah. it's 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 another way that I'm being re narrated in the very way I inhabit time. Yeah, that's great. Mm. I love it. Okay, I wanted to, to then talk about as we each live our stories. Then, and I just love this statement. In fact, I'm. I've underlined it. I've rewritten it a couple of times. And, it, and this is it. Not all change is loss and not all loss is tragic. And I think in particular, I think in my own life, but also I think for many people in the last couple of years, it feels like the changes that have happened that are happening feel, and there are real losses, of course, and there are yes. real tragedies that have and are happening. But but to say that not all change is lost and not all loss is tragic. Can you can you speak a little more to that? Because yeah. that, that also speaks to hope. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, um, so this is this is part of a conversation in the book where I'm I'm suggesting that mortality is its own gift. And I, I don't mean that to sound morbid or that like I'm glad we die. In, in fact, for me, mortality isn't just narrowly associated with death. It is mortality is another way of naming this experience we have as creatures who endure time, who who live through the experience of things coming to be and passing away. So right now I'm looking out my window in Michigan and it's a crisp day and the leaves are starting to turn red and orange and the gold will be a light uh, in the evening sun. 
and um, it will be beautiful, and then they will be gone. <laughs> and mm. and that is not. It's not like every December we think we've been robbed of the leaves. Do you know what I mean? It's it's <laughs> it's just sort of there's sort of a naturalness about that. Mm. And I think um, uh, to 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 be creatures and receive our creaturehood as a gift means we sort of we we hold out our open hands and we receive all kinds of good things from god but we hold them with an open hand because we know they can't last forever they, and that's and and that's some of them it's it's just not um it was they were never meant to last forever like for example you know we're thinking of you and i are both I, i'm chomping at the bit to become a grandpa i'm a little jealous <laughs> of you but if you think back like i mean say the toddlerhood of our own children, right? Was just like a, you know what that's, there's this just singular kind of way of experiencing their beauty and joy. And you see them emerging into these human beings and it's like an incredible thing. And if I thought I would never want to freeze them though in their toddlerhood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do right. I sometimes wish, Oh, you know, I may probably didn't appreciate it enough at the time. That's probably the case. But now when I tell you, you know, my 30 year old is such a beautiful friend and I can't imagine not having that friendship. Um, it's natural for us to experience the way these things come to be and pass away. And so not all loss is tragic because it's just, creaturehood it's part of creation and um so we we enjoy these ephemeral gifts mm. uh and we can still enjoy them gratefully as long as we don't cling to them idolatrously you might say mm. that seems so so important to hold both the losses you know i'm on the if in the enneagram thing i'm a four and so i tend to get really i can spin out in a pretty dark way relatively mm. easily and so mm. I can be more attuned to the losses or the, and, mm. and yet to not, to, to be able to hold the gifts though, and that it's not letting, letting, as you said, holding with an open hand seems so um, yeah. beautiful in, in the seasonality of things. One of the things too, that you, you'll notice, I keep trying to come back to in the book is that our history is not just what we've left behind because in fact our history is what we carry mm. and so it's there is there is a way in which um something can be both lost and carried mm. uh in ways that are meaningful and that that in fact my life is building on do you know like there's mm. there's a sense in which this had to uh, pass away to make room for the new thing that has emerged. In fact, St. Augustine says that that's the only way, the only reason music works is because mm. a note that was passes away and is now in our memory. So now we experience the new note and we are actually holding them all together, even though there's only one moment, one note at each moment of the now, but, we, but the, the, the sort of resonance of the past note is what we carry into the experience of the current one. And then that's what you call a song. That's what you, that's how you experience music. I, mm. I think that's, that's a beautiful analogy for what so much of creaturehood is. Yeah, that is, I love that. And then, and I think the other image that you, you spend some time in, in the book that I thought was really intriguing 
and you mentioned it a bit ago with um, you know autumn and 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 yeah, but you talked about gardening, right? About mm-hmm. the idea of getting your hands in the dirt and the idea of uh, what, what has been helpful to you about not that everyone needs to be a gardener, but I I found myself wanting to after reading your description of mm. it. But what 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 um, what has been helpful to you in terms of inhabiting time around around gardening itself? Yeah, it's such a, um, first of all, it's such a tactile, visceral sort mm. of experience. And it's it's just funny how, I think, you know, many of us who live in kind of, you know, urban and suburban and metropolitan contexts, we live in worlds that are so overwhelmingly artificial, we should be mm. honest. Do you know what I mean? Like, or at least we, what we should say is we human mastery over so many things has basically created a world where we are immune uh, uh, to some of the vagaries of nature. Whereas if you want to keep a garden, it's like, okay, you've got this window in which you can plant. So you have to attend to creation when it's asking for the seed. And Mm. then after it's been planted, now the long slog of being a gardener it isn't actually picking the massive pumpkin in in September or October. It's actually this long slog of just weeding every single night, and it's just endless. And you you get a little hope because now you start seeing you know these little shoots are arising, and but it, it's it's such an analogy to kind of like ordinary time of the Christian journey. It seems mm-hmm. to me. But then you know what what creation needs and calls for when you hit August and now the tomatoes. And if, and if I'm out of town, I miss the window for uh, um, uh, gathering those. And it's so heartbreaking to come back and find, find tomatoes falling on the ground mm. uh, because I wasn't there to respond to their ripeness and mm. their readiness, which wasn't up to me. So it's a very, gardening is also such a humbling experience, incredibly humbling experience, Mm. even though even for my wife is literally like a registered master gardener. And she will tell you how difficult it is, how frustrating it is, you know, can never figure out how to get these to grow, can never get this plant to work. So um, there's something humbling about encountering the lifetime of a garden every year. And um, it's just very um, resonant with what a human life is, it seems to me. I wanted to maybe close our, our time with this and, and to ask you, you know, again, we've talked about inhabiting time both personally and a bit collectively. As we're, uh, our audiences are these faith leaders and nonprofit leaders, for many, the last couple of years of time have been, yeah. as we've talked about over and over, uh, difficult, painful. What what words of encouragement would you give them to in, inhabit time well in this season, which is maybe it's we're not so much in the pandemic or at least as, as strongly at the moment. And yet there seems to be still a lot of uncertainty, a lot of you know, how do we navigate forward, but how do, maybe specifically, what are ways to inhabit time this time in this kind of season that you would yeah. want to encourage them in? Yeah. Boy, that's, um, so two things come to mind and um, th- they might sound um, 
benighted. But the first thing I would say, this just, I, I feel like some faith leaders need to hear permission to rest, mm. so, which I know might sound ridiculous because you're like, no, there's so much that has to be done. I understand. I would say that Sabbath keeping mm. is one of the most potent forms of mortal creaturely timekeeping mm. because what goes on in Sabbath keeping is actually I'm practicing the fact that I'm not in control. Mm. I'm practicing the reality that God is in control. And uh, actually speaking of Wendell Berry, he has, you know, has a whole series of Sabbath poems and I can't remember which one it is, but there's a line in one of them that says something like, because he's encouraging the farmer to, you know, take his rest. And uh, he says something like, uh, God is still at work while we are asleep. And I think to live into that reality, to fundamentally trust God and not our own ingenuity, mm -hmm. uh, that's what Sabbath keeping practice is for. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, the other thing that... Um, I would just encourage, I'm not sure if this is a particularly a timekeeping practice, but I would say I'm more and more convinced that friendship mm -hmm. is the most powerful manifestation of what God wants to do in the world, in a mm -hmm. world that has been isolated and lonely. And, and the pandemic really just unveiled what was already such a terrible epidemic of isolation and loneliness in late modern consumer cultures. And I think if you imagine both how to find friends for yourselves, but how to imagine communities as uh, congregations, as communities of friendship with God and to become a friend of God and friends of God's friends, I think is a beautiful way to think of the gospel's call and um, uh, looking for ways to to be that for the sake of the world, I think is, is again, going to be much more powerful sometimes than what we think is the, has to be the ingenuity of our message uh, in this moment. So, so be encouraged and fear not. So good. Wow. Lot to ponder right there. Thank you. Well, Jamie, thank you so much for the, thank you for the gift of this book. Honestly, it's been thank very you so much. valuable to me and I know to many and, Thank you for the work you continue to do and for taking some time to talk to us today. Thanks for your thoughtful questions too, Richard. I really appreciate it. And appreciate the spirit of, of what you are, are um, hoping to build a community around. So glad to be part of it. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation. If you found it helpful, Feel free to share this podcast with others and subscribe to it on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you found us, and give us a rating. We'd really appreciate that as well. Again, if we can serve you as part of Wellspring, we are here to serve the church, both its leaders and people in whatever ways we can. So go to wellspringca.org to see what resources we have to offer and how you can be served by them. Go to our Facebook page, just search Wellspring on Facebook and you'll see lots of resources there as well. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, grace and peace.